This is the VMware Financial Services podcast series called Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It. It's a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill. I'm the Financial Services Industry Managing Director at VMware in the office of the CTO. I've been with VMware now for two and a half years. Prior to that, I spent 30 years of my career in banking and banking IT. The aim of this podcast is to try and answer some questions that that in my prior life, I didn't even know I had as questions. Uh, Today, it's my privilege and pleasure to be joined by Joe Bagley. Yeah, hi, my name's Joe. I'm the CTO here for um, Europe, Middle East and Africa at VMware. I've been here nearly nearly nine years now, and uh, I essentially represent the office of the CTO to our customers in EMEA. And as, as I typically describe it, it's my 50-50 job. 50% is chief talking officer, which is this, and um, you know, sharing what, what I'm seeing with customers, CIOs, et cetera. And the other 50% is inbound actually working on the strategy of our products. And I'm quite proud of what we've built at VMware over the last nine years. And um, I've, I've learned a lot along the way. And before that, I was at a company called Quest Software for about 10 years, where I was um, CTO at the end. And um, lots of odd bits and pieces before that involving and on and off throughout my entire career, bumping into people who work at banks. Um, so look, as as part of my um, interview process, you were one of the people that interviewed me. And, and you know, I, I think from what I recall, we had quite, from my side anyway, we had quite an interesting conversation and we um, we spent quite a lot of time joking about things that happened in the industry. So, you know, when, when you get the, the opportunity to talk with banks, uh, and, I, you know, I know obviously I, I spend some of that time with you now and we go out and talk with folks, mm. um, what are the things that you kind of think, oh, I wish they'd have just stop worrying about that and think about this or think about this differently? Yeah. I mean, part of the challenge, I always, I always, uh, when I explain it to other people, I always liken it to turning up to a bloke whose house is on fire and he's running around filling up buckets and throwing up the house and you're standing there with a fire hose. And he sort of goes, I'm too busy to talk to you right now. I'm filling these buckets. And it, it's kind of that, you know, you turn up time and time again. You're like, if you could just give me five minutes, I've got some stuff that could really change what you're doing. And I know that you you were the same when we went through the interview process. You were like, oh, I, I only wish I'd known that. And it was like, it's not for want of us trying to tell you, Matthew. You know, we, we did try when you were at the bank to tell you a lot, but it was you're too busy doing other stuff. And I think there is always that tendency to, I, I, the, the interesting thing is this is this will to transform, I suppose is the best way to put it. So, you know, you think about it that I would love to transform, but I'm spending too much time and money keeping this old stuff going one of the reasons that i get told by cios when i finally do get to meet them is the reason that they don't tend to know about vmware is because they tend to spend more time with the people whose stuff breaks and gets dragged in front of them telling them why it's not working and how to fix it and you kind of alluded to this earlier that then you know our stuff just works i'm not being arrogant that it's amazing but generally our stuff works and so we don't ever have massive outages to the point where we're dragged in front of the cio to talk about what we're going to do to make it better and I think other vendors obviously then get a chance to get a really good relationship with the CIO as a result of that because, you know, they have to make it better. But we we didn't, you know. And and that's part of the problem I think we have at VMware is, is that we're just kind of that little bit detached because we do the virtualization and increasingly all the other stuff that we now do around storage, compute, networking, all those kind of bits, but it just works. Is that, is that a problem? So, yes, that's absolutely the case. I used to spend the majority of my time with strategic vendors and most of those strategic vendors were in telling me what what had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And whilst they were telling me what had gone wrong, it was the ideal opportunity to tell me how that was fixed in the next version. Yeah. They no longer did that. And actually, we could do this instead. Um, and And thinking back, you know, there was one or two niche suppliers that that was 
the end of the relationship. Yeah. And the majority where, you know, there's a level of dependency, a level of executive engagement, a level of um, maturity maturity or trust that, okay, you know, things do happen. And, you know, touching wood and, and, and trying to, you know, be a little bit superstitious, but you know, I can't say that we are a, have a hundred percent unblemished record here mm-hmm. um, at VMware, but I never had to call you in. I never had to have that conversation. Um, I don't remember my successors doing otherwise. Yeah. Um. So, so that kind of gave you less opportunity to come and tell me about stuff. Yeah. And uh, you know, and and added to which, you know. I bought a, at the time I bought it. I bought a product that I had a great idea what it was going to do for me. Um, it absolutely did what it said on the tin. Mm-hmm. You know, it may, it enabled me to save a lot of money from not buying more physical servers. And that kind of brings me into the first part, which is, you know, banks are spending seventy to ninety percent of their time on run. Um, they want to spend more on change, but they're really, you know, they're spending that time kind of hamstrung or, or or servicing the legacy that that's been built that they absolutely run very profitable banks upon mm-hmm. so you come to that point let's do just pick an example you've got something that runs on a mainframe right and you're too busy doing other stuff and then suddenly someone walks in your desk one day and goes oh we've got to do a renewal for the mainframe software for you know and they go when's the renewal oh it's in eight months time and you go, well, there's no way I can replatform that off that in eight months' time, so I'll just give them the money and carry on. And it's that kind of thinking that people very rarely stand back and take a three-, five-year view of what's going on in their infrastructure, in their applications, in how they're delivering services because they're trying to fix the three-, six-, nine-, twelve-month problems. And I suppose the other thing, we did some studies recently, and um, the, sort of the average tenure of a CIO is somewhere between 27 and 42 months. So, you know, that, that tends to be going for the first 12 months and, and work out what's going on, figure your plans, lay it out. Then you get 12 months to try it and then you're into 24 months. And if it's not working by then, you're out the door, you know. So having someone who's got a view that's five years long, which sometimes you have to have, if you're going to say instead, OK, well, I've just been stung for the renewal on my mainframe software. So what we're going to do is we're now going to start a Skunkworks project over there that's going to rewrite that whole thing in an entirely modern cloud native way. So that by the time we come to renewal next time, I can just turn around to the mainframe vendor and go, cheers, don't need you anymore. But that requires vision. So that's kind of my, my first bugbear, I suppose. So there's a lot of people I find, not just at banks, but at other industries, that think they're doing really cool, innovative stuff, but they're not. They're, they're not really actually doing proper innovation. They're just playing around with the latest toys someone gave them. So I suppose that's one of the things, really. Who's, who's playing with toys and who's actually building strategic value? what's going on i think with with what you've just said around that study that becomes very interesting and i think it it helps to highlight part of the issue that that many of our customers are facing which is you know when you look at a mainframe program most of the customers we've spoken to say it takes them between 8 10 12 15 17 years to really do a mainframe migration and to switch off yeah. With the with and you know, and reclaim the data center floor space or, or or whatever. And and trying, you know, talking that through with customers that have been successful, 12-year vision, a 12-year j- journey typically. Um, you know, when I when I started, we we were doing mainframe migration programs, moving from one mainframe to another. Yeah. They were multi, multi, multi-year programs um that the board bought into and they did a lot of they did a lot of um planning and replanning on its on its journey 
Um, but now, if the tenure is, let's just say the absolute max tenure is 48 months, or let's say yeah. let's say five years. Five years. Just which CIO that. is going to step up to their board and say, great news, I've got this 12-year mainframe redu- reduction program or replacement program. Um, no one, no board's going to sign up to a 12-year IT program. And I, I no. think if you go back 12 years, what was the state of IT then to what it is now? Not much different. <laughs> well, maybe not inside the banks, but in the outside world, yeah. I think it'd be dramatically different. So, so I think I think that's part of the big problem here is is how do the banks really you know do, do they embrace the mainframe? Do they have a mainframe strategy that helps them to reduce their reliance on certain things? Um, do they just not worry about it? And and you know when you think about how much cost is tied up in running that mainframe, yeah. and, I, and I'm thinking of running you know what it takes to run the bank. You need a, you need dedicated operations. You need clearly you need you know data center or data center space. You need um, a, you know, a, a range of people for supporting the hardware, the software, the operating system, the all of the environments, the batch, the everything, um, and that's a massive part of that cost base. So you know, in in any of the conversations that 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 we get involved in, are you are you seeing? Are you seeing strategies that are people are adopting there, or are they just really putting that to one side and saying, ah, "We'll we'll innovate around it rather than yeah. through it"? Yeah. So you'll see. So look, you could actually. It's a really good. There's a really good parallel here with with um, cloud, okay, and also politics, right? So if you look at what we've got going on right now, there's a general election happening in the UK as we record this, and one of the parties is promising that they're going to have everyone having free broadband by 2030. Well, the great thing is 2030 is so far away that everyone goes, yeah, yeah, that sounds really nice, but you haven't actually got to deliver on it because there'll be two parliaments by then, so it doesn't really matter. So it's almost that same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. As if you say, oh, we're going to be off the mainframe in 12 years, people can't compute that. They're kind of like, that sounds really cool, but it's not. Yeah. Whereas with cloud, what you saw was this whole cloud first. So everyone said, okay, no, we're not going to, you know, yeah, there were some rather naive people that said we're going to be all in the cloud by 2015 or whatever. But what it's actually manifested itself into is we're going to have a cloud first strategy. So I want you to look at the cloud first before you do anything else as to why we can't do that, because for us, it makes sense. If that, you know, And that, that's kind of interesting. So you could, instead of saying we're going to be off the mainframe by 2027, you could go, we're going to have a get off the mainframe strategy. So the first thing I want you to do is try and think, well, can we get off the mainframe? Can we get off the mainframe? Can we get off the mainframe? So there's no official deadline, but you're building a culture of we're not keeping that thing going we're looking every opportunity we can to to get off that thing i think you're going to get a better chance than actually picking any particular deadlines or or whatever's to do it and you then got when people do come and say well actually what i'm going to do is i'm not going to come off the mainframe we're going to slap a bit of really ugly middleware on top of it and then we're going to do some other hacking and then we're going to put html5 on the front and a mobile app and everyone won't know that behind it is this ugly thing from the 1970s people will go but no, we've got to get off the mainframe. So we should do this. I get all that, but we should get off the mainframe. So it's that sort of, we call it North Star vision or whatever it is. It's painting that vision, I think, is what people have got to do. Because, you, yeah, you're right. No one's going to do a 12-year strategy. It's not going to work, right? Five-year strategies, maybe, right? Because that's, you know, in the term of, you know, the government or in the term of your role as CIO, you're going to say, I'm going to get this done. And people could kind of hold you to that. So you're driven to it. Anything longer than that is really hard. You mentioned the parallel with moving to the cloud. So what what are you... What are your thoughts there on on do you do you need to keep a data center or can you do it on the cloud? Because obviously, you know, the, the term I, I hear talked about a lot is data center evacuation, which is <laughs> I think is a lovely term. Um, I, yeah. I've not actually found it to be too real. But but, you know, what, what are your what are you finding in talking with customers? 
Uh, so yeah, data center evacuation, that's a real thing, right? People are doing that. I think they're doing it for cost as opposed to necessarily doing it for because they want to go to the cloud. You know, in some cases, we've got to shut this thing down because it just doesn't, we can't afford to run this data center anymore. It doesn't make sense to us. Um, but I think what actually we're finding people do is they're putting a more rational approach to how their applications are built. And instead, what we're doing is we're now seeing the, the almost the deconstruction of apps and then the place of best execution. So it's not a case of we're going to take everything and run it in the cloud. We're saying, okay, fine, well, actually, what bits of this would work better in the cloud? Because we have this, we're trained as an industry to replatform stuff. That's the big difference. That's where everyone went wrong. Everyone thought they're going to just lift everything up and drop it in the cloud. Well, what the cloud actually does is gives you myriad opportunities on how you build an application and then a choice of those. So if you think back when we built an application before in the data center, you had maybe hardware vendor here and you had a database vendor there and you had a middleware vendor here. So you use five or six or seven different vendors to make up that application for you. That's fine. But now you're just going to say, okay, I'm going to use five or six different bits, some of them from the cloud, some of them from on-premises. So it's perfectly reasonable that you might have going forwards your system of record being on-premises, either in your data center or in Colo. That's fantastic. You know, big old database, you know, makes a lot of sense to run it on-premises or whatever. But then maybe there's bits and pieces of that. Some of them run in one cloud, some of them run in a different cloud or whatever. That's actually what we're seeing. It's this deconstruction of the app. So yeah, I think the let's get out of my data center and move it to the cloud is a bit of a naive view of things. There's a lot of people being very effective at doing that. Don't get me wrong. You know, there's very good reasons to pick up your virtualized stuff and run it somewhere else because it's cheaper, more resilient, whatever. But I think this general, oh, we're going to shut down all the data centers and everything's going to be in the cloud is, is probably a little bit too unrealistic. I'm not going to be as rude as to say it's naive. I think it's unrealistic in the real world. And that's the realization. So, you know, people talk about multi-cloud and hybrid cloud. And, you know, CTO at VMware five years ago, I'm talking about hybrid cloud. And everyone's going, well, of course you say that because you sell on-premise stuff. Well, I'm still talking about it now because it's what people are doing. And actually, I don't care whether you run in Amazon's cloud, in Microsoft's cloud, in Google's cloud, or on-premises. We, you know, we, we support the platform. We provide the platform that does all of those. You know, that's actually what it's about. It's about providing choice. Thinking a little then more about the, the the sorts of applications that you're seeing, and, and I, you know, I'm still kind of got this run versus change thing going in my head as we're talking about it, is, you know, do you see there's a there's a a type of application, a type of workload that that would really help to to kind of shift out of the data center and put in the cloud, um, that that would save money, or do you think well, actually we perhaps just need to think about utilizing the cloud for maybe let's say for elasticity or for capabilities that we don't currently have, but actually we want to re-architect on-prem more i'm what what you know what are you seeing or, or what are you hearing from our customers well I, I flip that back to you right so you used to run data centers you used to run operations globally for a large bank and you regularly complained to me you got woken up in the middle of the night for something that used to fall apart if it was me i'd be like okay well i want to work out what those things are that keep falling apart in the middle of the night and work out how i can run them more scalably and more sustainably that would be my first problem and there's no one answer to that in your case what were the applications if you can say that were the ones that got you out of bed most you know uh, it's it's to me that would be the the bits I'd want to deal with because they're the ones that are making me spend so much money on the running that I'm not getting enough time to do the changing. So let's let's take the let's, you know low hanging fruit, the big things or whatever <laughs> it is you want, the big hairy audacious goals, whatever it is first. But let's just pick the big ones, the ones that are actually sort of you know keeping us up at night, literally keeping you up at night. So I, I kind of liken it in a slightly different way, and maybe a slightly different use of the language. So, so for me, the big heavy apps are really the applications. They're they're monolithic. A change within them is typically there's in, there's consequences. Number one question: When you got paged, or did we change? 
Yeah. Or what's changed? Mm. So, you know, it was working when I went to bed and it's not now. What's happened? So so that 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 in itself, re-architecting, I think is a massive. And then and then thinking about, okay, so it's not just re-platforming, it's actually no. changing the app. And I and I think that one of the conversations that I've been involved with with, with some of our, our customers is is there's this assumption that when you run enterprise IT, most stuff from a hardware and a and an infrastructure point of view should just run. Mm-hmm. And it's been designed with resilience and redundancy and scalability and stuff in mind. Albeit quite often it's it's accused that it takes too long to do those things. Yeah. When you then compare that to um, to what you can do now, it's assumed that your same piece of code can then be thrown at a cloud yeah. and it's just going to come online, it's going to run, it's going to operate, it's going to do all of those things. I'm no longer going to get paged. The, the, <laughs> so funny. The developer's going to so get paged. True. That's right, isn't it? No, yeah, it's completely true. Yeah, just pick everything you got up and run it in a cloud and it'll be fine and there'll be like little birds flying and it'll be beautiful and amazing. <laughs> no. Um, if there's an overarching theme here, it's moving from tightly to loosely coupled. Okay, so if you look at those stacks that you talked about, typically they're very tightly coupled up the stack. So, you know, changing one thing has massive replication, you know, massive, you know, ramification throughout that whole stack of that application. Um, And that's just because as applications age, they get tighter and tighter integrated to the thing beneath. As people take shortcuts, they make um, decisions about how they build applications that aren't necessarily architecturally elegant, should I say. And so I think it's getting back to that level of architectural elegance and, and decoupling things and, and starting to make things, you know, much loosely coupled. So I can very quickly, so instead of, you know, stuff all being hard coded to other things, I mean, the worst case is, for example, hard coding to IP addresses, for example. I mean, what you do is instead of hard coding to an IP address, you hard code to a DNS name and then you can do what you like. That's a brilliant example of an API for someone who doesn't really understand APIs is if you always write to the API instead of the thing, then I can change what's behind the API as much as I want. But as long as you always talk to that same API, it doesn't matter. So it's taking that application, working out how I can decouple it. That takes bravery. But again, it can really start to do the what changed. Well, there's not much changing because it's all defined to these same APIs. And then you get you then increase your options because I've got, okay, instead of being this tightly coupled stack all the way from you know tin to the user, I've got 17 components, all with very well-defined API interaction points. And I can say, okay, well, this component here. Could we do this component better, faster, quicker, cheaper, whatever, somewhere else? Okay, let's try. And then you're just pointing the API somewhere else. And you, you, you got, and it's literally like treating like a black box. You know, if, if you put in one plus one, then two must come out the other side. You know, that's how you define your API. So, you know, it, it's very simplistic answer to that. But that's, you know, really what we're looking at here is how you do that. And um, I think that's probably the biggest challenge, again, is it's not just replatforming something. It's actually re-architecting it to be more loosely coupled because then you can take advantage of, of the cloud. So, so look, you know, we've talked quite a bit there about, um, a lot, I think, a lot of stuff on the run and moving to change. And, mm. and you know, I, I think, you know, one of the topics that, that often comes up is, so if I if I buy this stuff from VMware... I deploy it, I get it straight away. And, and, you know, actually, but I'm going to carry on running it the same way I've always been running it. You know, is that kind of, like, I, I think um, one of our colleagues refers to it as the the people, the process, oh, and the technology. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I think, I think we've probably got a whole lot of examples where one, well, the people, the process bit kind of gets caught out. Um, 
irrespective of the technology. Because we can do a great job of, of talking about, well, this customer's doing this, this customer's doing that, and we focus a lot on the technology. But actually, it's the underlying process that they've changed, and that's the bit that's that's the bit that's gained them the advantage. Well, what, yeah, but I think what people miss, and this is exactly the same whether it was going from physical to virtual or virtual to cloud, it's the same thing. People, if you take your existing people processes and technology and virtualize it, nothing's going to change. It's now just virtualized. But if you then look at the platform you're now on and change your people and process to take advantage of the opportunities you now have because the platform you're on, then things get better. So, you know, those virtualization has been around long enough that people will know, you know, V-motioning a server is very easy now. You know, you literally click and you can move them. And it, it's it's norm to move a, a live running workload from one server to another. But I do still know of one organization where they require written approval to V-motion a server because that's what they used to have to do before. Or, you know, or written approval to do stuff that's now very easy. So it's almost like, how do you change your process to take advantage of and understand what's going underneath that? And it's the same when you move to cloud, just taking what you do now on premises and doing it on a slightly what you think is cheaper cost base in someone else's data center is, is pointless unless you're taking advantage of the features and benefits of that platform. And I think that's the problem people don't look at enough. So I think, you know, to your point, you will never realize the benefit unless you understand the possibilities of the platform that you're on and how that continues to evolve and change. So if your people and process are stuck from five years ago, you're not going to feel the benefit. Uh, so uh, so it's that thing, you know, if the only thing you know how to use is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Totally. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. But one of the, one of the things I kind of keep hearing about is are we just moving the silo? We're not, we're not really breaking it down. You know, are, are we really eliminating... Are we eliminating process? Are we eliminating some of the causes of failure? Or are we just are we just making it complicated by running? I think it's this this other term, multi cloud, or yeah. um, you know, combining too many or so many moving parts that all we're really doing is just protecting enterprise. I said enterprise again, protecting enterprise IT, or or um, or, or moving the um, the thing back into a. Um, a, a new form of silo or a new form of of issue. So, uh, you know, is, is that is that something? Is that real, or, or or are people really breaking that down? Certain people in certain corners are breaking that down, and they're the ones that are doing things interesting. So, I, I talk to a lot of banks, and they get excited about fintech startups, and they you know they try to do their own fintech startups, and some of them are being quite successful. But to do that, they have to literally completely separate themselves from the existing bank, the existing infrastructure the existing applications, the existing processes, because they're just slowing them down and not because people are being bad or old or, you know, I don't, I hate calling it legacy, you know, I call it heritage because it's nicer. Um, but I think it, you know, the reason why you can't consume that really cool fintech company or compete with them is because you just can't move that fast and you can't, you can't, you you think of everything couched in an old in an old vision, and I hate to say that because you know I'm an old man as well. You know, and I hate to look at it and go, you know, you 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 old man, you look at it it's the wrong way. It, it, we're not quite got to the stage where in IT we're turning around going, okay, boomer, but we're not far off, right? <laughs> um, but I, I think it, it is that kind of you you have to change what you're doing and how you're doing it to take advantage of the technology that's available to you as i said you know that's what, that's the biggest thing i go into so many places and they're trying to see things through their old lens they're trying to see things through the way they've always done stuff and then they look at something being done differently and they assume well how can i do that in the way that i do it now, there's a really fantastic parallel that you know well which is electric cars right so 
people look at electric cars and they go, well, first question you get when someone talks about electric cars is how long does it take to fill it up? Yeah. Because right? that's what they're focused on. Because their world is focused on, I drive around a petrol or diesel car and I drive till it's empty, then I go to a petrol station and I fill it up and then I drive again and so on because that's what you've been trained to do. That's the world you live in. With an electric car, you don't do that. It just you plug it in at night and it's full in the morning and then you know you like your mobile phone, you don't know how long it takes to charge, it's just charged, and then when you drive around you need a bit of charge, you stop off and charge. You, I don't I couldn't I can never really answer the question. I'm sure you can't. How long does it take to charge a person? But that's my point. People try to look at you're still doing the same thing. You're still getting in a car and driving from one place to another, and you'll agree that doing it in an electric car is way more fun and much better and easier than doing it in a petrol car. But People have to change how they think about how they operate the process, how they do the process, how they do things. They'll realize it's better, but they're so used to doing it the old way, their vision is entirely clouded by how things are done. They can't comprehend that you do it something differently. So, And these are people that I meet, these are people that have been in IT just for 10 years, not 20 or 30 years. You know, We've always done it this way. We've always built applications in this way. This is how you do risk protection. This is how you do security. I know I've done it for 20 years. It's like, well, actually, security's changed. And we'll do another podcast on that, I'm sure, you know, and actually networking's changed in the last 20 years and, you know, we should do a podcast on that. I think all these things are changing and I think people accept they are, but they're just not really looking in it hard enough. To your point right at the start, you're running around too fast for that bucket to look at the wide selection of fire hoses that people are holding out to you as how you could do things differently. So it's, it's almost like you've got, once you've made the change, you then look back and think, why didn't I make this sooner? Think about all the technologies in, that you may use in the bank, that you may use to running the bank, and you, you know, someone's come along saying, oh, we should do this. Yeah, I looked at that five years ago. It was rubbish. Yeah, the market's moved on since then. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and actually, I liken that story to money. And, and you know, I think we've, we've talked about this before, is, you know, a, a question that we're asked a lot in, in the banking conversations, the banking context, that what's the view on money? You know, money is data, data, data is money. So that money has become virtualized. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can, we can kind of see that. Um, and I think you'd got a story about, uh, about cash and that kind yeah, of where, so where that... It, it's very much. Yeah. So this is an interesting one for me because I've got kids that are 19 and, and 16 and they've grown up in an Apple pay world. I think is the best way to put it. The, you know, Apple pay has been around, you know, most of their life when they care about spending money publicly. Um, but also they had, you know, cash cards and all the other kind of stuff. And my 16, my 19 year old, by the time she was 16 was on her third bank account and she changed bank accounts purely because the app that was being given to her by the bank was cooler. She could pay her friends, but also, you know, they gave her a debit card that she could use with chip and pin that would actually, you know, contactless. So there was, you know, I'm still with the same bank, right. That I was with when I was 12, I think that I joined because they gave out free actual pig piggy banks. If you remember that <laughs> bank, right. I'm still with them. Um, and, but my daughter's on her third bank account. Right. And then, and I didn't really think anything of this. This is kind of normal for her to do that, you know, because I was, you know, starting up a Monzo account and other things didn't mean anything. But we're walking, this is, you know, two, three years ago, we're walking in America and we're, um, on a holiday, family holiday, we're walking along and my daughter turns around to me because she wants to go and buy a drink. And, you know, if you're a parent, you'll know that when you're on holiday, you pay for everything. And she finally off on her own to go into this amusement park to go and buy herself a drink. It's fine. Off you go. And she turns around to me and she goes, dad, have you got any of that? And literally she went, Dad, have you got any of this? What do you call it? Oh, um, handheld money. And she knows the word cash, but she never uses it in her day-to-day -day vernacular. So, you know, I went cash. She went, yeah, that's right, Dad, cash. But because she didn't say cash or anything like that in what she did in her daily, daily activities, she had to, her, man, her mind went, oh, handheld money, that old stuff that people used to pay for. It, it was brilliant. It was, a, it was a dawning moment for me right there and then on a boardwalk in some American country. It was like, 
well, yeah, okay, this is different. Cash just doesn't exist. And I was with someone literally having dinner a couple of weeks ago, and we were having this very same conversation about who uses cash, who doesn't use cash. My wife now, literally all she carries is her phone because she opens and drives her car using her phone. She opens the front door using her phone, and she pays for everything when she's out using her phone. She doesn't take car keys. She doesn't take a wallet with her. Doesn't do anything. Everything's done on her phone. And I think, you know, she may be very early on on that, but she's not done that consciously. She's done it because I forced a load of technology on her, actually, if you answer, <laughs> if you want to know. But it, it's not like she said, I want to be a pioneer. It's just crept up on her. Those things, I think, lead into how the industry's changing to be more embracing of digital and, um, and I'm going to say, I think, fintech, because you mentioned lots yeah. of apps and lots of moving around. So what are you what are you thinking there or what are you in your in your conversations do the banks get it are the banks really you know is their ability to to actually to change and to um embrace this kind of new digital culture actually going to is it is it actually possible given the platforms they're on and the the, the way they're thinking about the delivery of technology well, I think that that's an interesting one because what, what's happened is if you look at where the money's gone in run and change in the last 15, 20 years, it's um, algorithmic trading platform at high speed, right? So all the stuff on the back end has been spent an awful lot of money on, you know, 200 nanosecond round trip, algorithmic trading, you know, stock, you know, quote pricing, all that kind of stuff. There's an awful lot of money gone into that side of it. They haven't invested anything like as hard and fast in the retail side. And I think that's where people have been caught out. So you're not getting fintechs come up and change the change the world in in the world of automated algorithmic trading. That's still being very much driven by the traditional players. Where they are coming up is in the consumer side, where actually the banks have dropped the ball to an extent. Whether you know someone else has popped up with another cool, interesting idea of how we build and and run a consumer bank, or you know Metro Bank did it to start with, just in terms of a customer service level and and so on and others. Where I think, and, and now you're seeing it with the the usual suspects in in that space, the Starlings, etc. I think. Yeah, if there was anything in that space, yeah, maybe retail, the retail banking side has realized, yeah, we're shutting down branches, we, you know, but didn't realize that when we're shutting down branches, that should be freeing up cash to go and do something else. That means we approach our customers differently, but they, they dropped the ball and other people did. And that's kind of, you know, so yeah, on the one side, the trading side, oh my God, yeah, they're incredibly well prepared. Yeah, there's the there's the small, you know, free trade and other stuff apps popping up here and there, but I think there's the opportunity there for banks to, to go into that space very, very quickly. But on the retail side and on the consumer side, I think the ball's been dropped. And that's where we see ourselves having interesting, exciting conversations with customers about how they can pick that ball back up again and engage with their employees and, and ultimately their customers in a, in a more in a more modern way, should I say. And I think what you've got to do there is pick those one or two big apps, those big problems that keep you up at night, the problems that, you know, the, the real things that are, are causing you cost and pain in run. And instead of running to some other fintech conference and looking at how someone else is doing it, look at that application, deconstruct it, work out how it actually works, start to pick it apart, draw it on a map, draw it onto a Wardley map, onto a wall, for example, understand how it plans out and then start to look at the components of that and start to see how can I improve the components of that? How can I start to change what the real problem is at the heart of what I'm doing in run? And then once you're into that space, you've got something a lot more specific to look at about what the latest and greatest is to do in that space. So yeah, Fine. If you're looking at something that is, is essentially, you know, your your whole ledger problem, then you, it's just too big to even look at. But if you look at that, map it out, and say, okay, fine, let's find a part of that section of that, understand how that works, and find an element of that that I'm going to say, okay, that's what we're going to transform. There's a small piece here. We can do that in two or three months. Let's make a change. That's what I would be doing. If you, if you put me into a bank tomorrow and said, right, you're the CIO, and you've got to get the run the run budget down by 20% by the end of the year, 
that's exactly what I'd be doing. I'd be looking at the biggest things that are causing the problems, but properly actually looking at it from a component level and understanding rather than just the whole thing and how someone how you know, if I worked at Barclays, how's HSBC doing this? That's not what you want to be looking at. It's what's the components that make it up. I don't know about you. Would that would that have made sense if I if it said that to yeah, you? Yeah, I think I think that that thing about what what's the thing that's giving you the headache? What's the thing that's keeping you up at night? What's the thing that's waking you up at night? What are the areas that you may be having the the highest level of operational risk around? And you know, and, and as you think about those things, they typically don't make it into the bill that goes back to the business. You've still got all of the other people that that, that kind of make up the the environment or, or staff the silos or, what, or 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 however you want to put it that are all there supporting that old inefficient um, troublesome application that needs to make its journey to to the to to app um and the reality as well is is it doesn't necessarily mean um we're going to deconstruct it and now run it in somebody's cloud no um it could be we deconstruct it it's the start of a path we can we can mobilize around a strategy we can hopefully reduce some run cost um whilst we're making some change um but what we're trying to do is improve and 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 move to a, a kind of a future architectural state. Oh. Well, I, th- I think so. For, for me, it comes back to that. Um, if you think of the example of British cycling, which is always you know quite a well with the whole marginal gain thing, where they they looked at the cycling, they wanted to win the Olympics, they wanted to go in and own the Olympics, and they did. But they didn't do that by looking at other someone else who was cycling and go, okay, well, what bikes are they riding and how are they doing it? What they did, they looked at they, what they were doing today and they looked at every single tiny detail and every aspect. And if that detail would get me half a second and that detail would get me 3% more power and that thing would do that, and I, they just did all of them, right? And they looked at the series of concurrent marginal gains that then added up to sufficient change in the system. And that's the system of what they were eating, how they were sleeping, how they were exercising, down to the equipment they were riding, how they were doing it. That transformed an industry to the point where they could walk in and just walk all over everyone else. And so, again, sometimes you look at these things and you go, oh, this is just too big. It's, it's too hairy. I can't deal with it. So, well, no, let's have a look at those series of marginal gains that we can get across the whole end-to-end chain. If we agree that we're going to do all those together, then actually it will be better. That's, that's the same sort of thing. And that might be get this component and move it to cloud. Yeah. Right? It might be get this thing and move it to a virtualized on-premises that's faster or more reliable or whatever. It could be a whole host of different things, but there's no one answer here. And I tell you right now, the answer is not put it all in PaaS or put <laughs> it all in containers or put it all in serverless. That's not the answer. That's a great way to end our chat today. Thank you so much, Joe. My pleasure. Always a laugh. Thanks for listening today. For more information, please check out the show notes, vmware.com, or follow me on Twitter at Matthew Owen or on LinkedIn at Matthew.O'Neill. Next time, we'll be talking about end-user computing. <laughs>